0: Both Joes are here. Well, look at that. It's good to see you all. It's good to see the whole Lombardo family with us. And it's good to see you all here as we continue our study this morning, this Advent ceiling, or season, not sealing, dealing with the angelic messengers of the covenant. That is what we're focusing on this morning, as we have been for the last couple of weeks. This morning, we're in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, which you'll find on page 959 of your pew Bible. Always good to have a Bible open as we listen to and follow along the preaching of God's word. I remind you that the word translated as angels in the New Testament simply means messenger and specifically when referring to angels, they are always God's messengers. As they were present at the giving of the law, the Bible says, which was mediated by angels, so they appear in great and significant events throughout redemptive history. The incarnation or what the Bible refers to as the fullness of time when God took on human flesh in the person of his son is probably without argument, the most significant event in redemptive history. And so we're not surprised at all to find the presence of many, many angels throughout the story that we have recorded for us in the Gospels, as well as throughout his earthly ministry. Let's not forget that after his temptation, an angel was sent by God to refresh him. Uh, at his, uh, before his crucifixion in the garden, an angel came to strengthen him. Uh, There were angels present at the tomb where he was raised from the grave. And so those events are significant and we find angels present. The only other event, of course, in redemptive history that will have more angels present than there were at his first appearance will be, of course, at his second coming when he, the Bible says, very clearly will return in power with all the angels For he, of course, is the Lord of the angels, the King of the hosts of heaven. And in this brief Christmas series, then, we've already looked at two places in the incarnation where the angels are sent by God to certain people. The appearance of the angel Gabriel to Zechariah, the priest, who is the father of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. And then, of course, last week, Pastor Fisher led us in the study, probably the most familiar study, this Christmas season of the angel and his appearance, that is Gabriel's, to Mary. This week, we'll look at another appearance of angels, and that is to Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. And next week, Lord willing, Pastor Fisher, will talk about the angel's appearance to the shepherds. And that's plural. There were many who appeared. In fact, the whole sky was filled with them, the Bible says. Now, these four instances where angels appear around the birth of Christ, it seems to me that the appearance to Joseph, the adoptive early or earthly father of Jesus, is probably the least well-known and most unusual as we see in our study this morning. But despite all of that, what we can say about this godly man is that he sought to care for his son well and to be faithful to do so for as long as the Lord gave him life. And so we'll see that as we come to God's word and hear it read, Matthew chapter 1. Please stand. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. This is the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, and he called his name, Jesus. Thus far the reading of God's word, all flesh is as the grass, all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, we do pray now that you would bless the hearing and preaching of your word to the growth of your people here gathered, to the calling of your elect unto faith. And Father, to our encouragement and reminder of the reason for why we celebrate this wonderful event in redemptive history, and we ask your blessing to that end, and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Of all the very prominent and familiar characters that we know from the Christmas story, we likely know the least about this man who would be the earthly father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The most that we have in the Bible spoken of him is actually from this gospel, from Matthew's gospel. And that is intentional. It's uh, very important for us to note that because it seems that Matthew, of all the gospel writers, is the most concerned about Joseph as he writes his gospel clearly from Joseph's perspective. Whereas, obviously, Luke is clearly writing from Mary's perspective, and that probably firsthand from Mary herself. The rest of the time that we find any mention of Joseph, and we're talking, of course, about the Joseph of the New Testament, the earthly father of our Lord and Savior, The rest of the time we find him mentioned, and he's mentioned several places, John 1, John 6, Luke 4, Matthew 13, but all of those places are simply referencing Jesus as being the son of Joseph, the carpenter. Outside of that, we know very, very little about Joseph and about his background, his upbringing, really anything about his heritage. And so this morning, we want to learn as much as we can from this account that Matthew records for us that the Lord gives us in his word at this place. And so I want to look at this under four sort of separate headings and work our way through this particular passage, 18 through 25. And the first thing I want to note this morning is the overall setting or what we might refer to as the context of Matthew's uh, gospel account. It's very important at the outset to understand and to note why it is that Matthew is writing his gospel. If you know the difference between the gospels, there are three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are called synoptic because they take a view of the life of Jesus from the sort of same perspective, the same view. That's really what the word synoptic means. And so they're looking at the life of Jesus from a very similar view. John stands apart from that, not a synoptic gospel. John's view is very, very different. John's whole purpose, of course, is that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And by believing, we might have life in his name. He states that purpose. But John is also writing to establish the divinity of Christ. Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. He has the most quotations from the Old Testament are found in his gospel. And he's really wanting to establish something that's very significant that we've seen really all throughout our service in many of the readings. Look in the beginning of his gospel as he himself begins this work, this writing. He says, the book That is the gospel that he's writing of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now you can see immediately there's a a Jewish focus there. The son of David, the son of Abraham, two of the great saints of the Old Testament Uh, Matthew's point, his whole purpose, is to establish that Jesus Christ is the true son of David and the true son of Abraham. And so he's going to go through the generations that lead to the birth of Jesus. And he lists them there, and and it's famously noted that Matthew records 14 different generations three times. Fourteen generations from one to another, from Abraham down to David, and then from David down to the captivity, and then from the captivity down to Christ. There are 14 generations in each of these accounts here, 14 individuals mentioned. And and we have no time at all this morning to go through the list, it's not our purpose. It's simply to say what is clear that Matthew is doing. And ultimately what he's doing is establishing the fact that Jesus is in the line of King David. This is the true son of David, promised by God long, long ago. Promised by God in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that we mentioned already. The promise that God made is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. If you go down to verse 18, he begins the account of what he writes here as the birth of Jesus Christ. But but the translators here use the word birth, and it's a legitimate translation, but really the translation ought not to be birth. It's not the normal word that we find in the scriptures for birth. But here the word really means the origins or the very beginning of Jesus. You'll notice that Matthew doesn't record anything about the actual birth of Jesus. That's found in Luke. We famously have memorized, many of us, and our children have memorized Luke chapter 2, 1 through 20. We, we know those fast, that passage by heart because it records the actual birth of Jesus. Matthew doesn't do that because his purpose is not to give us an account of the birth of Jesus. He wants to talk about the origins. How did Jesus come about? How did he come to be here on the earth? And so he establishes that he is the true son of David. He is in the line of, of David, as one writer so wonderfully says, through Joseph, his adopting father, Jesus receives his credentials for his mission. Through Joseph, he is counted the son of David. This fulfills the promise made long ago that Israel would have a David-like king to rule the people with justice, Second Samuel chapter 7 that we read earlier. The Lord promised this also to Jeremiah when he said that he would raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who would reign wisely. Matthew reveals that Jesus is from the line of David, not from the flesh of David, from the line of David. All along, Matthew tells us that God has been orchestrating the needed deliverance. All along, throughout all of history, all the generations that are listed here, Matthew is telling us that God has providentially preserved the line of David, even in the captivity. Even as the kings were taken off into captivity, even in that, God was preserving the line of David and orchestrating it all for the needed deliverance of his people. All of this is why Matthew begins his gospel with this genealogy and the account of the origins of Jesus Christ and why for Luke it's not as important to do that. The genealogy in Luke doesn't appear until chapter 3, after the birth of Jesus. But Matthew wants to establish at the outset the origins of Jesus. How did this come about? And that's exactly what we'll see. That's the overall setting and a very important thing to note with respect to Matthew's gospel and then how Joseph fits into it. Remember, Matthew writes from the perspective of Joseph. That's his whole purpose. And so what about this man? The second heading here is the man Joseph. We've already noted, and this should be short, right? Because we don't know much about Joseph. We really only know what Matthew tells us here and some other incidental things that we've seen. But verse 19 does tell us, if you look at verse 19, as we're introduced here to Joseph, we're told that Joseph was a just man. He was a righteous man. He was loving and gracious and kind, it appears. Most commentators, most historians believe that Joseph, as probably was common in this day, would have been some years older than Mary. How many, we can only speculate, but probably significantly older than Mary if she was, in fact, around, as Pastor Fisher said last week, 14, 15, or 16 years old. Joseph was far more mature, but he demonstrated himself to be As Matthew records for us here, a just or righteous man. He was a loving man because of his actions towards his wife, finding her in the condition that she was in, presumably Mary telling him. And he's seeking to respond to that in a loving and gracious way. You'll notice as well as Matthew records uh, for us what happens as he thinks through those things, and verse 20 says, as he considers these things, that Joseph also appeared to be a very patient man. He was not one to rush to judgment, to act rashly without thought or even without prayer. Because he was a righteous man, one who loved God, who waited for the consolation of Israel. I think we know that to be true, that he was a faithful man in that regard. He would have prayed about this very carefully and patiently before taking any action against his betrothed wife. Later in life, we have one account that seems to tell us that he was very faithful as well in training up his son, Uh, Jesus, actually, in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, it's Jesus who's actually referred to as a carpenter or a builder, reminding us that Joseph most likely, and probably without exception, taught Jesus the trade of carpentry or building when he was younger. And so Joseph was faithful in raising his adoptive son uh, to grow up in a trade with a skill, if you will. Finally, as we consider Joseph the man, he must have been a man very much like Mary. I suspect he was. I I don't think you could be anything but what Mary was, what the scriptures say in Luke, that she kept all of these things, treasured these things up in her heart. I think the same was true for Joseph. I don't think you could be the adoptive father of the Son of God and not be one who treasured and considered and thought often and pondered long about these things for as long as the Lord gave him life. It would have been the last thought on his mind, I believe, at his death that he had the privilege of being the earthly father of the one who would be his redeemer. And I think he knew that. I think and believe the scriptures would have us to understand that he would have liked Mary, believed that and rejoiced in it. It's no wonder as we consider the very little that we know about Joseph, that some songwriters over the years have sought to capture Joseph's feelings. Are so much written about Mary, Mary did you know, famous Christmas hymn. Lots of songs about Mary's perspective, what Mary would have understood, what she would have felt. But fewer that have been written about Joseph One of my favorites, perhaps yours as well, is the great singer-songwriter Michael Card who wrote the hymn, Joseph's Song. Perhaps it was sung in one of our concerts over the years. I suspect it was, but my memory fails me. Here are the lyrics of that song. I think they capture really well Joseph's (laughs) pondering his thoughts. How could it be this baby in my arms sleeping now so peacefully The son of God, the angel said, how could it be? Lord, I know he's not my own, not of my flesh, not of my bone. Still, Father, let this baby be the son of my love. Father, show me where I fit into this plan of yours. How can a man be father to the son of God? Lord, for all my life, I've been a simple carpenter. How can I raise a king? How can I raise a king? He looks so small, his face and hands so fair. And when he cries, the sun just seems to disappear. And when he laughs, it shines again. How, how could it possibly be? How could it be? I think any of us would have pondered similar thoughts as we would have been called like Joseph to be the man of God's choosing to raise the son of God uh, given to this world to save sinners. Well, we need to look next at the message that he receives. The angel comes, that's what this series is about. It's about a messenger who brings a message. And the first thing to note about the message is the way that it comes to Joseph. It's worth noting here that the way in which the angel appears to Joseph is different than what we have seen in the other, and we'll see in the other three accounts that we're examining. We're reminded again, as we've noted from Hebrews 1, that the Bible says that long ago God spoke at many times and in many ways to our fathers by the prophets. He spoke often in visions and dreams. They were some of the ways in which God spoke to his servants of old to reveal his purpose and plan. And as we've seen throughout our study of the prophet Ezekiel, for instance, the Lord often used these kinds of ways to communicate to his servants what he wanted his people to know. As we're studying Ezekiel, it's one vision after another, and I've said to the people as we gathered on Wednesday nights, I said, you have to understand that what likely happened, most likely happened, is Ezekiel would have been sitting there, he's under house arrest in the first 24 chapters, God does not permit him to leave the house, but the elders come to him. And then suddenly, as the elders are sitting there, they're watching Ezekiel, and Ezekiel just goes into a trance. That's what it would have looked like. He would have sat there, his face would have become uh, emotionless, and he would have been in a trance. And the Lord would have revealed what he wanted to reveal, and Ezekiel would have communicated it to the elders. You can think of Joseph's dream as God revealed to Joseph in Genesis which became, of course, the reason why his brothers would want to kill him. Or the vision that's given to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, which brought him to his knees and to a place where he was, he says, completely undone. Or if you like visions, you need to read the book of Zechariah. It's full of visions, really strange visions sometimes. But Zechariah often caught up in these visions as well. When you move to the New Testament, God continues, at least for a time, to continue to speak in this way. Peter is brought into a trance, the book of Acts says, as Luke writes. And he's given a vision of a sheet with all kinds of animals on it, both clean and unclean. And he's told to rise up and eat. Or even think of the Apostle John in the book of Revelation while he is in captivity there On the island of Patmos, he has given dreams and visions to reveal to the church of his day and our day of the victory and triumph of the Lamb over all that oppose him. Now, there are plenty of other places you could look to and point to with respect to the ways in which God has spoken in times past. But I think the book of Hebrews makes it clear that those are not the ordinary ways in which God speaks today. They're not normative. Pastor Fisher rightly said last week, we ought not to expect angels to visit us and to speak to us. It ought not to be sort of on our list of things to look forward to as followers of Jesus. That's not the way God speaks now. But that doesn't mean that God cannot speak that way, that he cannot communicate that way. It seems that since the establishment of his word the canon now closed, the scriptures now being given as the final and authoritative word from God and in Jesus himself, that it's not the normative way anymore. God speaks to us by his spirit through the word as we listen carefully to what he says. And so here, unlike the others, the angel appears to him by way of a dream Joseph would have known that he met with an angel, he clearly did, but it wasn't before his eyes, it was in his sleep. Not like Zechariah, Mary or the shepherds who visually saw angels who being spiritual beings took on for a period of time, flesh if you will, an appearance that they could be seen. Well, why was it? Why was it to Joseph That it wasn't the same. Why don't you have the same buildup, the same sort of elaborate and extended sort of conversation with angels? In my opinion, I believe it's due to the urgency of the matter before Joseph. In fact, this appearance by the angel would happen at least two, some say three more times that you heard read earlier in chapter 2. While those appearances are not before us, they do, I think, capture the urgency of the situation. They needed to escape from Herod. Herod was about to kill all the children two years old and under. They needed to return to Egypt because the prophet said, out of Egypt, I will call my son. We can say as well that with respect to going back to Nazareth, it would be also to fulfill that he would be called a Nazarene. We might say that God determined to waste no time in these things so that otherwise the use of unproductive time that we often call nighttime or sleep, God would use here. And I have to imagine, and perhaps you would agree, that there might have been a period of time in Joseph's life where he was a little bit reluctant to close his eyes at night not knowing or understanding whether or not an angel would appear. You have to understand the angel still gave the impression of fear and awe. And so the same reaction Zechariah had and Mary had and the shepherds had would have been his as well, which is why when we get to the next part, the message that's given, it begins the way that it does. And so that's how it was given, the message. What was the message? It's very clear in the text as... Matthew writes it. It's very clear. He says, beginning in chapter or verse 20, Joseph, son of David. Now that reinforces what we began with. He's called the son of David for a reason in Matthew's gospel. He's always called the son of David because it's through Joseph that the line is established. And so what is the message? First, do not fear because fear is the normal reaction to angels. They're not cuddly, cute, little, as Pastor Fisher said last week, uh, diapered beings. They are beings that inspire fear and awe. They come as messengers from God, and therefore fear is the natural response. And so he needs to tell him, do not fear. And then he says, secondly, take Mary, your betrothed as your wife. Take her for your wife. Do not follow your original prayer sought, carefully thought out response of being kind and gracious to her, quietly putting her away to divorce her. Do not follow that path, he says. Take her to be your wife. Thirdly, Joseph, you need to know that Mary has not been unfaithful to you. You may not understand this. These are mysteries, but in fact, she has been found favored and faithful. Think of her response for the child that is within her was not conceived through adultery, but by the Holy Spirit. It was the mystery of the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary. This child is to be the very son of God. And then fourthly, you will give to him a name. Mary was told the same name. It will be Jesus, Joshua, for he will save his people from their sins and he will fulfill all that the prophets foretold. That's the straightforward, simple and direct message that Joseph is given. What was his response? What was his response? Well, to understand his response, you need very quickly to understand, and most of us have heard this before, the nature of engagement in the Jewish culture at this time. It is very much like what we would understand in our day and what we would call actual marriage. This time of engagement or betrothal where Joseph and Mary have been betrothed already was a very formal process, very much again like marriage in our own day. It was usually sealed with a gift or some written declaration, although it was often accompanied by much, much more. The period of engagement for a virgin was normally about one year, during which time she had the rights of a wife. Divorce was absolutely required in order to break an engagement. That's why. Matthew tells us what Joseph was prepared to do. He was prepared to follow the law. He was, after all, a just and righteous man. And so he was going to put her away by divorce. And in the engagement, during the engagement, if the husband died before the formal marriage, the woman would be officially left as a widow, not one previously engaged, but actually as a widow. And any infidelity during an engagement was regarded by God's law as adultery, according to the book of Deuteronomy. So this is the setting into which Joseph's response is made. After hearing from the angel, you may remember from our previous study where we examined the angel's appearance to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah. In that study, we noted that Zechariah was rebuked because of his unbelief. He refused to hear, to believe, and obey what the Lord's messenger had told him. You remember those words? The angel said, I am Gabriel. Do you not understand who I am? I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent by God to speak to you and bring you this good news. Implied there is because of your unbelief, you will be silent and be unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. This is a match made in heaven, Joseph and Mary, because Joseph and Mary, their response is exactly the same. Like his betrothed's response earlier that we saw last week, Neither Mary nor Joseph are rebuked. There's no need to rebuke them because their response is clear, full of faith. Verse 24 captures Joseph's response to all that the Lord had spoken through his messenger. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, where the interaction with the angel had taken place, he did immediately what the angel had commanded him and he took Mary as his wife. But he did not know her until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. His reaction, his response was immediate, and it was full of faith. His response involved action. It involved the action of taking her as the angel had commanded for his own wife. And this little bit at the end is very important. Joseph knew and understood the way people talk. Times haven't changed. He understood the way people talked. And so for her sake, for his sake, and ultimately for the glory of God, he did not know her at all. So that it might be without a doubt established that this one within her womb was conceived not by Joseph, but by the Holy Spirit. And so Joseph's response was incredibly a response of great faith. That leads me to two points as we move to closing this account of the angel's visitation to Joseph. First of all, note that Joseph was a model as a man of faith. We don't know much about him, but the little we do know, we can commend him as a model to all who want to be men and women of faith. He was marked by what I believe are nothing less than the gifts or the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And we've noted some of them, haven't we? Patience, notice his patience again, very patient in what he did here, patiently thinking through, patiently seeking God, patiently determining a plan. Before the angel had come at all to visit him, Joseph demonstrated a great patience. He was faithful or faith filled. He was full of faith in his response and in everything that he did, He was exceptionally kind, it seems to me, and full of love for Mary, loving her well, seeking not to embarrass her, to make her the talk of the town, but to quietly put her away, to allow these things sort of to die down, to protect her reputation. She was, or he was, a man of great kindness and love. It was all the evidence of the work of the Spirit of God, because he was like Simeon, like Anna, He was someone who was waiting for the consolation of Israel, the promised Messiah to come. And like Simeon, he knew that he could now, having been revealed that this was the Son of God, the promised Messiah, he could now depart in peace, for he had beheld and seen the Lord's salvation. You and I, if we are believers this morning, have come to know this same Jesus. Not in the same way Joseph did. We've never beheld him with our eyes. We've never held him in our arms as a baby. Nonetheless, as Peter says in his first letter, though we do not see him, yet we love him, don't we? Nonetheless, we do love him. And therefore, we live by faith, by faith in the promise of his coming again, waiting again for the salvation of the Lord to appear. Because that's what the second coming is. It's the first coming over again, but different. It's still awaiting, and it's still awaiting for the salvation, but in its completeness, in its fullness. They were waiting in its initiator, initiation, its beginning, if you will. We're waiting for its completion. And so let us be, we might say, like Joseph, a man of great faith, hopeful, full of kindness, full of love, full of patience as we wait for his coming. The second thing to note by way of application, of course, is God's faithfulness. This really is a story of God's faithfulness. Remember, angels are his messengers that he sends. He sends them for a reason. He sends them to tell his people who are waiting that God is on the move again, that he is doing something new. And I think what we have here is a beautiful picture in this account of how faithful God is to fulfill his promises. This really is the true son of David. That's who this is. That's what Matthew wants us to understand. This is God working behind the scenes in his providence, orchestrating everything perfectly to the fullness of time when the son would come. The incarnation is, in fact, a testimony that God keeps His promises. That was the promise made by Isaiah to a wicked king, King Ahaz, who refused to believe God, who refused to ask for a sign, and God says, I'm going to give you one anyway. But the sign He gave him was not for his day alone. It was for another day. And that promise, having been given, now fulfilled by God in the incarnation is a testimony that God's word is true. He is faithful to everything that he has promised. You see, without the incarnation, God cannot be trusted. He cannot be trusted. The men on Thursday mornings are reading liberalism or Christianity and liberalism by J. Gresham Machen, one of the founders of the OPC, the Westminster Seminary. Wonderful book, 100 years old in 2023 speaks today like it spoke then. He was engaged in a great battle for the truth. And in that great battle, as he wrote that book, he wrote several other books, one of which was The Virgin Birth of Christ. He was defending in that book the fact that the incarnation, that Jesus would come and be born of a virgin, that the Holy Spirit would overshadow Mary and conceive in her womb by the power of the Spirit, this child that that doctrine of the incarnation must be believed by anyone who claims to be a Christian. It is a non-negotiable truth. If you meet someone who says, well, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, I'm following him, but you know that story about Mary and the spirit and all this weird stuff? Nah, they are not believers because they can't be. Because God made a promise, he fulfilled the promise, and if that promise is not true, God is a liar and he can't be trusted and there is no one who can be saved. But the promise is true. Machen was right when he fought for those fundamentals. When we iron it down or, or whittle it down to the, the core doctrines, one of them is the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. It has to be true in order for someone to be a believer, you have to believe it. If this account of the origins of Jesus, which is what Matthew's concerned about in verse 18, the origins of Jesus Christ, how did it come about? If that was not true, then nothing God says can be trusted. But as you know what I say, let God be true and every man a liar, because God is always true. Now, as we've seen, there's much we can learn, I think, from this account of the angel's visit to Joseph in a dream. His unquestioning obedience to the Lord's messenger reminds us of Mary's response, as we saw last week, as I've said. He knew that this was God speaking to him, and he obeyed right away, without hesitation. May the Lord grant each one of us the same obedience to what God has spoken to us. He was patient. He waited upon the Lord. The Lord relieved him from all of his fears. As J.C. Ryle so beautifully says in his brief commentary, how good it is for the believer to wait upon God. Whoever cast his cares upon God in hearty prayer and found him ever to fail you, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. That's what Joseph did and how faithful he was, so faithful to fulfill his calling and duty to a child that was not his own, not of his flesh, not of his bones, but became the son of his love. He raised him, he guided him, he taught him, he prayed with him, he prayed for him. How wondrous is that? How amazing it is to pray for your son that you know is the son of God, who created you, who will die for you and for your sins. And all of this, because God sent an angel to him in a dream, telling him to fear not for God himself was at work here, this child conceived by the Holy Spirit. And he will be the fulfillment of all the prophets had spoken. This was the dawning of a new day, a glorious day, and Joseph knew it. He believed it and he obeyed the messenger that was sent to him from God a messenger who came with urgency, not only here in these verses, but in chapter two as well. But step back just a moment and see that there's something even far greater going on here. I want you to see with me another father who is caring so well for his son. We see it in our text this morning as the father provides for his son, the very means by which he would be born in the line of David, Joseph, son of David, Joseph, son of david this is how the angel refers to him for good reason for the lord had promised that from david there would come one who would sit on the throne and rule an everlasting kingdom not from his flesh but from his line how glorious is god's providence and care for his son but we also see it as we look at the two additional times he sent a messenger in chapter 2 An angel from the Lord, I suspect Gabriel, he's not named, but makes sense to his Joseph in his dreams. And he spoke to him. He said, get out and flee to Egypt to flee the murderous Herod, who was acting the part of Satan, who sought to kill the child. Joseph immediately obeyed. There was no time for hesitation here. He obeyed. He believed the angel. He fled to Egypt and the child was protected such as the father's care for his son. We see it again in chapter 2, when the angel came again in a dream to Joseph, commanded him to return to Israel, and then to Galilee, and then to Nazareth, so that all that the prophets had spoken would come to pass, that he would be called a Nazarene. Such is the providential, faithful care of a father for his son. He gave his angels charge over him as he had promised. It's one of the verses I read most often as I visit people in the hospital. I read it to Joe at least once. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the most high who is my refuge. No evil shall befall you, no plague shall come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. Matthew Henry, so beautifully, as he so often does, captures the sense of this promise so well. He who is the Lord of the angels, who gave them their being and gives them laws, and gives laws to them whose they are and whom they were made to serve, he shall give his angels a charge over thee, not only over the church in general, but over every particular believer The angels keep the charge of the Lord their God, and this is the charge they receive from him. It denotes God's great care of the saints in that the angels themselves shall be charged with them and employed for them. Observe the extent of the promise. It is to keep them in all of thy ways, even when there is no apparent danger, yet we need it, and where there is the most imminent danger, We shall have it wherever the saints go. The angels are charged with them as the servants are with the children. And so the scriptures say, are they not all of them angels ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And so learn from the story of Joseph from one father's care of his own son, not his own by flesh and blood, but a son of adoption, as well as another father's care for his own son, our heavenly father's care for his eternal son, that as the father has so cared for and loved his own dear son, protected him from all harm, delivered him, so he will do the same for all who trust in him, for all who have made him their dwelling place and who walk in his ways. He has given his angels charge over you. So great is your father's care for you. Let us pray. Father, this wonderful, marvelous story of providential care is a great comfort to our hearts. As we consider the dangers of this life, the fears that we face every single day, and the promise which you have spoken to us and the wonderful, amazing gift that you've not not given us, a guardian angel, one special angel for each person, but you have called all of your angels to guard all of your people and to keep them all from harm, even as they walk in your ways. And we give you thanks for your faithful care for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and for all of those who are in Him by grace And through faith, we pray this with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.